Thank you, Terry. What a reminder that <clears throat> we must start our prayer with thanking God that we can pray to Him, right? Because He hears and He cares and He answers in every way to our benefit, even if it's hard, and to His glory. And what a reminder it is this Sunday, especially, that we must, we must never take for granted the fact that we can be a church. And because uh, you, you don't know, we don't know if we'll be here today or tomorrow after this moment, right? And just having Diana and Daria with us today, three days in America, four days in America, just incredible. And, and hearing uh, Bruce Albert this morning, him sharing that, I think he said it at the, uh, up front, or maybe he said it in the elders meeting that, you know, there were times when he wasn't sure that he would be back at Grace Church ever again. Yeah, he said that at church. Pastor John said that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, you know, to think of the fact that we can be here from Sunday to Sunday, we must never take this blessing, this privilege for granted. You know, as we think about this, uh, Mike Tarenko, you guys know he's, uh, he's in Far East Russia, in Siberia, doing missions work. My cousin, he came, well, we all came here 30 years ago, so just reflecting on the things that are happening right now, uh, I was talking to Bruce Albert on Thursday, and we just went back 30 years to the time that we came to America, and the blessing that it is for us to be here, and then just to see this happening in a different way, but still this happening right now, and to talk to the people and to be able to help them in some ways is, uh, is an expression of God's grace, absolute expression of God's grace. And uh, when I was uh, texting with Mike this past week, Mike said that life is getting difficult for them there, as it is, you know, in, in Ukraine, life is just, it's completely different. It's upside down, Right? Life in Russia is changing as well, not, to the, not the way that it is in Ukraine, but it's still changing. And he said that there are a lot of challenges that they're facing. They're facing financial challenges. They're facing challenges in getting food in the stores and getting parts for the cars and for the airplane because he's doing uh, missions through the airplane. But as he was saying this to me, then he started to list off the various ministries that he's doing. And my response was, Mike, it seems that when you guys are facing all of these challenges, the ministry is not stopping one single bit. And he said, it's actually not. It's just increasing. It's giving more opportunities. Doors are opening. People are responding in an incredible way. He said, people are responding right now the way they responded 30 years ago when the doors were just open for people to come in and to share the gospel. That's the response that they're having. That, this is God using terrible tragedies and travesties to bring the gospel to people. And so we, we praise God for this, for the way that he turns things around. But we must also remember that we can never take for granted the fact that we are here. And I, I do want to uh, share one thing that Mike said to me at the end of his te text messages. He said this, say a big hello to the group. <laughs> so he sends you guys regards. He sends you guys a warm love from the entire family. And he just said, thank the group uh, for praying for us as they do uh, missionary work over there. So please continue to pray for them, pray for Ukraine, pray for the people who are coming, uh, who are escaping these tragic, tragic uh, circumstances and trying to find um, more or less a normal life. Well, we are back in the 12 prophets. 
We're, we have an opportunity to uh, open the Word of God, and we thank God for this as well. Uh, we just finished going through the books of Jonah and Nahum, and now we're going to move to the book of Haggai. Dr. Fraser did an overview of the book a couple of weeks ago, and he gave us an excellent understanding of the whole book, just giving us the big picture of what's going on in the book as a whole. And now we want to go through this book section by section, and we want to do this because it's the Word of God. We want to do this because this is what the Israelites did. We want to follow in their footsteps, right? Nehemiah 8.8 8 says that they read from the book, and then they explained it, then they gave insight, and they provided understanding so that people knew what they were reading. And that's exactly what we're doing, and that's what we want to do. Now, as we approach the book of Haggai, we want to ask the question, so how does this book fit into the bigger scheme of our study of the 12 prophets at this point, right? We went through Jonah, through Nahum, now we're going through Haggai. So how does it fit into this plan? Well, a number, or I guess several weeks ago, we went through Jonah. Jonah preaches to Nineveh in Assyria, preaches around 760 BC or so. This is before exile. This is when northern Israel and southern Israel are still one kingdom. So he preaches to Nineveh, to Assyria. Nineveh repents. God spares them. But then a couple of generations pass, and Nineveh and all of Assyria, they return to their wickedness. And several generations later, they come to northern Israel, and they destroy northern Israel. They take uh, Israel into captivity, into exile, and uh, they basically live out their wicked lives. So then God sends Nahum. And the message that Nahum delivers is a message of destruction on Assyria. And so we focused on Nahum and we talked about the, the message that he was preaching, what he was bringing, and how he was speaking, prophesying really, about the destruction of Assyria. And after he preached, sometime later, um, the Babylonians came and they destroyed Assyria, just like Nahum prophesied. But in addition to destroying Assyria, the Babylonians also destroyed southern Israel. They destroyed Judah, they destroyed Jerusalem, and they took those Israelites into exile, into captivity as well. And the Israelites were in exile for 70 years, but after those 70 years passed, God brought them back. God brought them back to Judah, to Jerusalem, and the reason he brought them back was so that they would restore Judah, that they would rebuild the temple, and that they would live out their lives of holiness as a people of God. However, when the people came back, they did not build the temple, they focused on themselves, and they neglected God. They neglected worship of God. So at that time, God called Haggai to come to these Israelites in Judah and to call them to worship God. He called them to build the temple and to worship God. The people returned to Judah about 538 B.C., but for 18 years, they didn't build the temple. And they said that it's not the right time to rebuild the temple. That was their reasoning. Now, the temple was a central place of worship. So it is a big deal to say that it's not the right time to rebuild the temple. Essentially, what they were saying is that it's not the right time for us to give 
worship to God the way that God instructed us to give worship to him. And so when this was happening, God sends Haggai to tell the people, stop living self-focused lives and start living a life where God is at the center. Even if this makes your life busier, even if this makes your life more stressful, even if you become a target for your enemies, worship God. Put God first. And this is something that we struggle with today as well, right? We're often too busy for God. We don't have time to spend with God. And it's not, sometimes it's not even because we're wasting our time, right? On things like video games or watching CNN. And I don't know if anybody watches CNN here. Or watching Fox News. Okay, there you go, Fox News. <laughs> There's time for that too. But I'm not talking about these things. I'm talking about the things that we have to do. Right? I'm talking about work, where we do this to provide for our families. I'm talking about taking care of your house, taking care of the leaks so that the, the house doesn't fall apart. I'm talking about taking care of your yard or your car or anything related to daily life that you have to do. But when things like this consume our lives, we can begin to neglect God. And whether we admit it or not, our actions are saying that we don't have time for God. We don't have time for prayer, for devotion, for church, for ministry. That's what we're saying when we begin to neglect God. And this is what the Israelites were doing during Haggai's time. And so God sent Haggai to tell them, is it not time to worship God? How long will you focus on your lives before you start worshiping God? That's the message that Haggai brings to the Israelites. And so in our passage today, in Haggai chapter 1, we're going to cover the first six verses. In this passage, Haggai looks at three aspects of the disobedience of the Israelites, and he responds to them by calling them to rebuild the temple and to worship God. He looks at the circumstances of Israel's disobedience. He looks at the case that they make for disobeying God. And then he looks at God's confrontation of Israel for their disobedience. Now first, Haggai considers the circumstances of Israel during their disobedience. And he says to them that even if the circumstances are legitimately difficult, submit to God. Worship God. And when we look at the circumstances of Israel at this point, we see that the this, this situation was truly difficult. As we look at this, we first see that the Israelites, at this time, they were still suffering from the political consequences of exile. Look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, just as we begin to read this. It says, In the second year of Darius, the king, and we can pause here for just a second. In the second year of Darius the king, Darius is not an Israelite name. Darius is not an Israelite king. Darius was a king in Persia. So the question is, why is a prophecy by an Israelite prophet to the Israelite people from 
the God of the Israelites, beginning with a non-Israelite king? And the answer is that because Israel was in the shadow of the pagan rule and they were still suffering from exile and they did not have their own king. The Israelites were still experiencing the consequences of exile. And from this very brief introduction in this verse, the historical background of the book also provides for us the fact that the people were also experiencing social consequences of exile. It says, in the second year of Darius the king. Well, the second year of Darius is 520 BC. And like I said, this is 18 years after the Israelites returned from exile to Judah, and they returned to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And the question is, if 18 years have passed, why haven't they yet rebuilt the temple? 18 years. Well, the truth is that they tried. When they returned, right away, Ezra 3.10 says that the Israelites laid the foundation for the temple in order to build the temple. But then, Ezra 4 goes on to describe that when the enemies saw that they were trying to rebuild the temple, the enemies began to persecute them, they began to attack them, and so the Israelites stopped. The enemies threatened them, they hired mercenaries to oppress them, they came up with all kinds of creative ways in order to prevent the Israelites from building the temple. And you know how long this oppression lasted for? It wasn't one year, it wasn't two years, it wasn't three years. Ezra chapter 4 verse 5 says that this went on from the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's when they returned, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, that's 18 years later in the time of Haggai. So this oppression went on for 18 years. All these years, the enemies of Israel are attacking them and they're threatening their lives and the Israelites are trying to rebuild the temple. And so at this point, the Israelites, of course, say, forget this. I'm exhausted. Every time I, every time I try to do something for God, I began to be attacked. I'm tired. I just want to live my life in peace. I just want to live my life in quiet. Just have a house. Have a family, wife, children. Just want to live a normal life. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with living a normal, peaceful life? There is nothing wrong with that unless you want to live a peaceful life without God. If that's how you're looking at a peaceful life, then everything is wrong with that and that is why God sends Haggai to the Israelites to confront them of their disobedience despite the difficulties that they were facing in their lives so God sends Haggai to bring this message to them now we don't get very much information about Haggai but we do see here that Haggai is the perfect person to bring this message to them the name Haggai means feast means feast and then it says in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 1, if you look at that, it says that Haggai comes to the Israelites on the first day of the sixth month. where This was around the time that the Israelites were supposed to celebrate the new moon feast. And they were supposed to offer sacrifices in the temple. So what you have is you have a prophet named Feast, and he's coming to the Israelites on one of the feasts that they're supposed to celebrate and that they're supposed to offer sacrifices for in the temple. And he's telling them, 
build the temple. You can't celebrate this feast unless you have a temple. You can't worship God the way that he instructed you unless you have a temple. And God uses Haggai here to confront them of neglecting worship of God. And as Haggai comes, he goes straight to the leadership. Zerubbabel, the political leader, and Joshua, the religious leader. And those men were supposed to lead the nation to worshiping God. The second part of verse 1 says this, The word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, by the hand of, by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And as we look at these two names, we see that this only reinforces the fact that the life in Israel at this time was challenging. Zerubbabel, it says, was a governor of Judah, not a king of Judah, even though he came from the royal line of David. But you know who was a king according to this verse? Darius was a king, a pagan. Right? Zerubbabel was merely a governor. The Israelites didn't have a king because they were still suffering from exile and because of the original reason they went to, Israel, uh, to exile, because of their sin, because God cursed the line of Jeconiah and said that no kings would come from that line. So for all these years, 18 years, you have Zerubbabel in a powerless position as a ruler who is unable to get the people to rebuild the temple in Judah, the reason for which they came back to Judah. But at the same time, as you look at this, as you see Zerubbabel, and as you see this message coming to Zerubbabel, you see that God is giving them hope. God is preserving the royal line through Zerubbabel, and it creates a hope. It gives hope to the people that one day there will be a king, the Messiah, the ultimate ruler, who will do what Zerubbabel couldn't do, who will do what God promised Israel will have an ultimate king who will rule over Israel. Now, the message of Haggai also comes to Joshua, the high priest. And we see that he was just as powerless as Zerubbabel. The high priest was the highest religious position in Israel, and it went all the way back to Aaron, the high priest. The high priest was supposed to count the money for the temple. He was supposed to handle the Torah in the temple. He was supposed to cleanse the temple of idolatry. He was supposed to offer sacrifices within the temple. But Joshua couldn't do any of these things because he and Zerubbabel weren't able to get the people to rebuild the temple. Joshua, in a way, was a high priest in name only. So when you see all this, you simply have to say that Humanly speaking, the circumstances of the Israelites are really difficult. And in a way, again, humanly speaking, it's understandable why they didn't build a temple because their life was so difficult. But God says circumstances are never an excuse for neglecting God. Imagine the worst possible circumstances. Difficulty with finances, difficulty in marriage, Difficulty in relationships, difficulty in your personal life of any sort. But understand that for God, these are never a legitimate reason to neglect God. 
No matter what the situation is, Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. So as Haggai looks at these truly difficult circumstances, his response is singular, build the temple. Haggai's message is, when life is hard, worship God. Worship God no matter what. And after Haggai considers these circumstances of Israel, he then moves on to the second part of the situation, and he begins to look at the case that Israel makes for disobeying God, the case for Israel's disobedience. Now, Haggai considers Israel's case to disobey God, and he shows that even if you think that you have reason to disobey God, God will not approve because God commands that you worship God. Look at verse 2. Haggai says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. And the first observation we can note here is that these are the words of God. Haggai wants the people to understand and to know that these are not Haggai's words. These are God's words. This is why Haggai says, thus says Yahweh. And Haggai is emphatic about this in the entire prophecy in these two chapters. In verse 1, the text says, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai. Here in verse 2, Haggai says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. In verse 3, it says, the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai. Then in verse 5, Haggai says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. Again in verse 7, this is the next time, Haggai says, thus says Yahweh of hosts. And this continues on and on and on throughout his entire prophecy in the two chapters. Haggai is emphatic that this is the word of God. When somebody comes to you and tells you something that you don't want to hear and something that you don't want to do, we have a tendency to respond and say, mind your own business. Right? You worry about yourself and I'll worry about myself. Well, in order to have a response to this, to preempt this, Haggai says that this is not my words. These are not my ideas. This is God speaking. And here in verse 2, Haggai goes even further and he emphasizes that this is the word of the supreme God. He calls God Yahweh of hosts. The word hosts is the same word for armies. This is God, Yahweh of the armies. He's the supreme God. And Haggai is saying here that God has full and he has unlimited power to both bless you, but also to punish you if you disobey. And Haggai's point is you better listen because this is not just me saying this. This is God saying this. This is almighty God saying this. And so with this authority of the prophecy established, we can make a second observation here that God condemns the case of the Israelites to disobey God. God says that the words of the people are not the words of God. When it says here, Yahweh says that this people says, God is making a distinction between what God says and what the people say. These are not my words, God says. They do not reflect the speech of God. They do not reflect the mind of God. And they do not reflect the heart of God. What the people are saying, God says, those are not 
my words. And then God proceeds to condemn what this people was saying, which is two excuses that they give for disobeying God. And their first excuse is that it's just bad timing for the project. They say that time has not come, even the time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. The people aren't denying that they're being disobedient. They're instead making a supposedly rational argument that it's just not the right time to build the temple of God. It's not time for this project. And this is how we sinners operate. We blame timing. We blame circumstances. We blame surroundings. We blame people around us. We will find any reason why it's not our fault for the sin that we are committing. Adam in the garden blamed Eve for his sin. Eve blamed the serpent for her sin. This is what we sinners do. But God doesn't accept this. God holds each one of us accountable for our sin. For God, it's not a matter of timing or circumstances or anything else. For God, it's a matter of your heart. That's what God looks for. That's what God responds to. And then after blaming the timing and the circumstances here in Haggai, the people excuse their disobedience by simply removing them from this project entirely, by removing the responsibility from themselves entirely. Listen to this. The people say, the time has not come for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. They don't say the time has not come for us to rebuild the house of Yahweh. They say, it's not time for the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. They're using a specific passive form which removes them from this picture. They're not part of this project anymore. It's as if the house will rebuild itself, the project will take care of itself, and they will have no involvement in this. Right? This is what we see kids doing all the time. You walk into the kitchen and you see that there's milk spilled all over the floor, right? And you say, what happened? And the kid says, the glass fell. <laughs> and that's true, right? The glass fell. They're not lying. But is that really what happened? The glass tripped. <laughs> the glass lost its balance, right? And then the milk went all over the floor. I'm looking at Abner's kids and they're saying, nope, nope, nope. We're responsible. <laughs> Right? No, it's you dropped the glass. You spilled the milk. But and I should say the kids as well as the adults remove ourselves from these statements in order to remove this blame that comes with this from ourselves. And that's what the Israelites are doing here. They remove themselves from the picture and they act as if this doesn't concern them whatsoever, that they can't do anything about this, that it's out of their hands entirely. But God doesn't accept this explanation. To God, they are responsible. Because if you don't do what you're supposed to do, then you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing. But God condemns the Israelites here for this response. You can also think about it this way. When we don't do what God commands us to do, we're basically saying, I have more important things to do right now. God can wait. 
Those are harsh words, but that's what our actions say when we put God on the back burner. And it's a big deal to say that God's house can wait. What was the purpose of the house of God? Why was the temple built in the first place? Well, when Solomon built the temple in 1 Kings 8.11, it says that the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. The house of God was a place that was supposed to display the glory of God. So the glory of God is what the Israelites were robbing God of. And that is what God was concerned with, his glory. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, just in the second next page, God explicitly says that when this house is built in the time of Haggai, God says, I will fill this house with my glory. And then in Haggai 2.9, he even says that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former glory of Solomon's house. God wanted to display his glory through this house, but the Israelites were trying to rob God of his glory by being negligent and by neglecting God. And the way that the people were doing was very simple. They were more concerned with themselves than they were with God. That's what we do. That's what we do when we refuse to worship God and to display His glory. We put our concerns first. We essentially put our glory above the glory of God. And this is what was happening in the time of Haggai. And because this is what the Israelites were doing, God sends Haggai to confront the Israelites confront them of their disobedience to God. And this is our third observation for the day. God confronts the people for their disobedience with a specific purpose, so that they understand that what they're doing is neglecting God. They're neglecting worship. And that as a result of all of this, they're being disciplined by God. God wants them to understand this. First, God confronts Israel of prioritizing themselves over prioritizing God. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies waste? God charges Israel here with putting themselves first and putting God last. God repeats the words you and yourselves and yours in reference to the Israelites, to emphasize the fact that his people are responsible, they are self-absorbed, and they are thinking only about themselves. Is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses, he says. Remember I said that the Israelites tried to remove themselves from this statement. They tried to get themselves out of this picture. Well, God emphatically brings them back in and he says that you are responsible. He emphatically says you yourselves are responsible for this. You guys know the expression, me, myself, and I, right? It's an expression that uh, conveys the idea that you're all and always about yourself in every aspect. Well, in a way, this expression is biblical, because that is what God says here about the Israelites. It's biblical, but of course, it's not a good thing. God says that Israel is all about me, myself, and I. 
And the problem with this attitude is not, not only that you're saying that you're more important than other people, you're actually saying that you're more important than God. And that's what God condemns Israel for, that by focusing entirely on themselves, they have displaced God. They have become first, and God has become an inconvenience. But God's command to Israel is to always put God first in everything. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What was his answer? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says your priority is God. But in Haggai, the Israelites have flipped this. They love themselves first, and their love for God is nowhere to be seen. And as a result of this attitude, as a result of this approach to life, the Israelites treat themselves far better than they treat God. It says they live in the comfort of paneled houses, in other words, in fancy houses, while the house of God lies in waste. Now we might ask, but is it wrong to have a beautiful house? Is that wrong? And there isn't anything wrong with that, unless you're getting rich at the expense of your relationship with God. If you're getting rich, and therefore you don't have time for God, then that is exactly what God is condemning Israel for here in Haggai. God says to the Israelites that while Israel lived in their luxurious houses, the house of God is lying in waste. The temple is torn down. The stones upturned. There's not a worshiper in sight. It's abandoned. Israel has neglected God. And so God confronts them of this. God firstly confronts them of prioritizing themselves over putting God first. And secondly, God confronts the Israelites with a challenge to examine their lives and to understand that they are under judgment. Listen to verse 5 here. Verse 5, as God calls them to examine their lives. Haggai says, So now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. As God confronts the people, God immediately focuses on their heart. He says, set your heart to consider your ways. Sometimes the translation might be consider your ways, and that's a good translation. Now, very literally, the text says, set your heart to consider your ways. When God confronts them, he goes straight for their heart. Don't just think about it. Don't just reflect on it. Set your heart on it. The heart is the control center of your life, both physically and spiritually. Physically, the heart is the main part of your body that keeps you alive. If you cut your finger off, you will live. If you cut your arm off, you will live. But if you cut your heart out, you will die. The heart is the seat of physical, spiritual, and mental life. This is why God focuses on it. When I was at Hebrew University, one of my professors, a non-believer, he said in passing, he said, God is not so much concerned with your heart as he is with your actions. But I thought, if God doesn't care about the heart so much, 
Why does he keep coming back to it over and over and over in the scriptures? The word heart appears in the Bible 1,016 times. God refers to the heart over 1,000 times in different ways and in different contexts. The greatest commandment that we just read, Jesus says, is you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. In Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6, Moses says, God will circumcise your heart. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will give you a new heart. And then on the flip side of this, this is where the fool decides that there is no God. Psalm 41 says, the fool says, in his heart, there is no God. God refers to the heart over and over and over because God cares for your heart. God knows that the heart is the control center of your life and that it drives everything that you do. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is what governs our life. The heart regulates how you think, how you act, and how you live. When there's a problem in the behavior of the people, God goes after their heart because that is what needs to be remedied. So God says to the Israelites in Haggai, set your heart to consider your ways. Take the question of how you're living your life to the control center of your life and consider how you're living your life in that control center that determines how you live. God knows that the only way that the Israelites will overcome disobedience is when they have a change in their heart. But in addition to calling the people to focus on their lives and on their heart, God also calls the people to understand that he is disciplining them for their disobedience. The people work and work and work, but all of their efforts seem to be in vain. They disappear into thin air. They're able to make fancy houses for themselves, which we saw just earlier, but their livelihoods as a whole they seem to be hitting a wall. God says in verse 6, You have sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. All the hard work that the Israelites are doing just seems to be entirely in vain and it seems to be disappearing. And God says that this is happening because of your disobedience. This is exactly actually what God warned them about when he was making a covenant with them. And he told Moses to tell the people in Deuteronomy 28. He says that if you disobey God, you shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little for the locust will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout territory, but you will not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives will drop off. This is exactly what was happening with the Israelites in the time of Haggai. God struck their agricultural productivity, you have sown much, but bring in little. God struck their food sustenance. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. God struck their drink nourishment. 
You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. God struck their physical and their bodily protection and well-being. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And God also struck their financial resources. Whatever money the Israelites were making, were earning, the money was vanishing. And I remember talking to a friend uh, told me a story when in 2007, he made some money, $100,000, and he put all of that money into the stock market. And the response tells me that you guys know what happened with the money. <laughs> 2008 came, the financial crisis hit, and over a very short period of time, he lost something like thirty dollars or $40,000. I'm afraid of losing $30. <laughs> he lost $30,000. And that's what was happening to the Israelites. And God was using this discipline to cause the people to set their hearts on their daily lives and to understand, to realize that they're being punished, that they're being disciplined by God for their disobedience. Now, as you think about this disobedience, as you think about this punishment, it absolutely is discipline. But please understand that this discipline is also the grace of God. God's intent was to shake the Israelites out of their disobedience and to get them to submit to him, to get them to obey God, and to get them to be holy. Pastor John mentioned the passage from Hebrews 12 about discipline, and we're familiar with this passage. Hebrews 12, 6 says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he flogs every son whom he receives. But listen to where this passage goes in verse 10. Why does God do all of this, all of this discipline? Verse 10 says, He disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holiness. God disciplines us so that we may be holy like God is holy. This is what God was going after with the Israelites in Haggai's time, their holiness. This is what God is going after in our lives, our holiness. God confronts us so that we may share his holiness. And let me raise this by way of conclusion. We can ask a further question. Why does God confront us and seek to make us holy? For what reason? And the answer is this. So that we would display his glory through our lives. The chief end of man is to glorify God, to worship God. When he confronts us and makes us holy, he shapes us to worship him in purity. And this brings us full circle with the overarching question that Haggai was challenging the Israelites with. Is it not time to worship God? Is it not time to worship God now? In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the author writes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, the time is now. You know, as you sit there and as you think, maybe, maybe there's not a, somebody who's not a believer here. And if you're not a believer, today is the day to start worshiping God. 
and for us believers, today is the day to examine your life and to ask, are you worshiping God? This goes back all the way to Haggai's time when he was calling the people to worship God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have left your word for us. Lord, that you have sent prophets to your people. And Lord, that you have never given up on your people. And Lord, that you have called sinners over the past millennia and even until now to come and to worship you. Lord, that you have been patient with us. And not only have you been waiting for us to come to you, Lord, but you have been directly involved in transforming our lives, into saving us, and then after saving us, into sanctifying us. Lord, even though discipline can be hard for this time, Lord, we thank you because we understand that the reason you discipline us is to make us like you to cause us to share in your holiness. And we thank you for this. And Lord, so as we walk away right now, I pray that our focus would be on you, that our desire would be to worship you. Lord, that our lives would be transformed, that our hearts would be transformed to keep you as the goal, as the prize of our life for which we live. Lord, help, help our lives to display your glory. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.